Genesis 45 from verse 16. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this, take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings, because the best of all, Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts, as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they were leaving he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Jacob said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out, and with all that was his, And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you. And I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba. And Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in their carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and their possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters and all his offspring. Amen. We are reading some more of the following chapters as we go along this morning, so you might like to keep your Bibles open uh, as we go. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you're sovereign over the world, you're sovereign over our lives, uh, that you watch over our coming in and our going out. And Lord, we pray that you'd remind us of that again this morning, Uh, strengthen our hearts to trust you wherever we are, 
and enable us in that to give our lives to you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, leaving uh, the place where you've been for a long time can be difficult. Uh, if you move to, someone, uh, to somewhere else, it's always an unknown, uh, the place where you're going. You're moving away from what you know. Uh, you're moving away from the habits and the routines that you've formed over many years. You're moving away from friends and family, uh, from friendships that have taken years to establish. Uh, And many of us, or some of us, have done that. We've moved from one place to somewhere else quite radically different. Uh, Some of us have moved interstate. You might have moved from overseas. Uh, Or you might have moved from somewhere else uh, in Tasmania. Sometimes our moves are also moves away from not just friends and family and habits and routines, but moves away from security to insecurity. Uh, I'm often mindful of the people that we send out as missionaries. Many of them have gone uh, not only to somewhere new, somewhere that they didn't know, but also to, to places that are not as safe or as stable as we are blessed with here. And the chapters of Genesis that we're looking at this morning are really about a similar kind of thing. They're about the move of God's people away from their home to somewhere else. They're about the move of God's people from the place that God had promised to give to them to a place that was unknown and uncertain. Uh, And these chapters are about how through that, through that uncertainty, God is doing his people good. So the story that we read just before picks up Uh, After Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers, Pharaoh hears that Joseph's brothers are in town uh, and he invites them all and and his family to come and live in Egypt where they'll be provided for during the period of the famine. Pharaoh's offer is so generous that he says to them, don't bother bringing anything of your possessions with you because you'll have everything that you need here. (laughs) How's that for for moving? Uh, You you leave everything, no shipping containers, you leave everything behind uh, and you get all new stuff when you get to the new place. That's the kind of generosity that Pharaoh is lavishing on Joseph's family. And Joseph himself sends carts back with his brothers. Clearly, uh, they brought some things with them. Uh, They bring their their cattle and their livestock. And Joseph sends uh, these things with them to make their return trip uh, more easy. Uh, eventually, the brothers get back to their father and they tell him the good news. You can imagine how that might have gone down for them, uh, for, for Jacob uh, and for the brothers, uh, saying to their father, uh, Dad, you know how we told you that your favourite son was torn apart by wild animals? Uh, you know, we showed you the, the cloak and all that. Well, actually, he's alive. Uh, and he's ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Uh, you can understand why when they say that, Jacob's going, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> what, why am I going to believe you? But when he sees the carts that have been sent back, uh, he begins to accept what his sons have, uh, have told him. And so at the beginning of chapter 46, with the prospect of seeing his long-lost son, the son that he's been grieving over for 20 years, Jacob finally sets out with his family for Egypt. However, along the way, uh, Jacob gets to Bathsheba, uh, sorry, to Beersheba, and he offers sacrifices. Beersheba 
to us is, is, is probably no particularly significant place, but later on in the history of Israel, it will become synonymous with the furthest, uh, the most southern part of the, the, the land of Israel. It's the most southern part of the promised land. And so what Jacob is doing, if you like, is on the edge of the promised land, on the, on the last point on his way out of the promised land, he's stopping to offer sacrifices to God. We have to remember that not that long ago, Jacob had only just returned to the promised land. He'd spent 80 years in exile. Uh, he'd had to flee from the promised land because he'd stolen his brother's inheritance. He'd been out of the promised land for 80 years. He'd finally got back. And now, all of a sudden, he has to leave again. He's been there for about 30 years, but, but still he has to leave. And so, it's on his way out that he stops to offer these sacrifices to God as an expression of trust, but it's also as a request for help and protection. You might remember the kinds of misfortunes that beset him last time he left the promised land. It wasn't all smooth sailing. And so on the way out, he stops and he says to God, God, you've got to help me. Uh, this is scary business. You've got, to be, you've got to be with me. And in response, God appears to Jacob and reassures him that he will in fact be with him. Chapter 46, verse 3, I am the God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. God tells Jacob, don't be afraid. I'm going with you. You're not going on your own. I'm going to be there as well. Of course, we can understand, can't we, why Jacob would have been afraid there's all the uncertainty of moving, the, the normal uncertainties that go, leaving a place, going to a new place, uh, leaving everything behind, wondering about how he's going to feed his family uh, during this widespread famine. Is Pharaoh really going to be as generous as he says he's going to be? But I think on top of that, in the back of Jacob's mind, probably with those ominous words that God had spoken to Abraham in Genesis 15... God had said there to Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God promised that his people would end up in a foreign land and that they would be there for 400 years. And it wouldn't be until they'd been enslaved and mistreated that they would actually be rescued from that. And Jacob is probably thinking to himself, how is this trip to Egypt going to work out? Here I am going to Egypt with my whole family. Is this going to be the place that we're going to be for 400 years? Is that what I'm heading into? I'm leaving and I'm never going to see this place again. I'm leaving my family, it's not coming back for 400 years. I'm leaving and my family one day, my descendants are one day going to be enslaved and mistreated. Is, is that where this is ending up? But God says, I will be with you. I'm going with you. I'm going down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. The promise that God gives here actually pushes way into the future, 
and toward the hope of the resurrection because Jacob wouldn't ever actually come back alive to the promised land. It's going to be 400 years before the people come back. There's no way he's coming back in his lifetime. But one day, on the other side of death, God is bringing Jacob back to this place that he promised him. But before that, there's going to be this 400 years in a foreign land. And you and I, I think, find ourselves in a remarkably similar situation to Jacob. The New Testament tells us that we are strangers in a place not our own. That is, we don't even have to go anywhere to become strangers. We're already strangers where we are. The Apostle Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter's saying, you belong to another place. Your citizenship isn't here. It's not in this country, uh, on this planet. This isn't home. You're a stranger. You're an exile. You're waiting to travel home again. But not only are we like Jacob and his family, not only are we like them strangers in a foreign place, we're also like them looking ahead to that promise of difficulty. You're not coming back. God says to Abraham, without being enslaved and mistreated first. And we too have words from God that promise times of great tribulation and difficulty before the return of Christ and the resurrection of his people to everlasting life. Here's what Jesus promises his followers in Matthew 24. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. One of the people uh, in the band that I play in turned to me this past week after the election of Donald Trump and said to me, somewhat unexpectedly, if you want to know what the end times look like, this is it. I said, I'm sorry, what was that? And they said, they weren't joking, actually. There There was a hint of seriousness Actually, more than a hint of seriousness in what they were saying. And the repeated theme of this past week, and I think this part, the past few years, in, both, in the minds of both religious and non-religious people, is that the world is heading into a time of great uncertainty. Journalists and commentators are using apocalyptic language to describe the situation that the world is in. Many people are deeply worried, and not just for themselves, many people are worried about the future of their children. And you see it in people's faces, and you see it behind their eyes. And of course, many Christians throughout the world are already living in the midst of great trials and great tribulation. And if you don't believe that, talk to Peter about what the situation is like for Christians in Egypt. 
Ask him what it's like to be a Christian there, where people are put to death, where people are martyred for their faith. And yet, the words that God spoke to Jacob are as true for us as they were for him. What's this going to be like, Jacob's thinking to himself? And God says, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you back. If you're afraid of the future or you're afraid of the present, for yourself, for your children, if you're afraid, please know that if you belong to Jesus, the God of heaven and earth is with you. He's with you as we sit here now. And he's not just beside you, he's living in you. He's with you now, he's with you as you leave this building later on. He'll be with you when you lie down to sleep tonight, when your eyes are closed and anything could happen. He's with you when you wake up tomorrow morning. And if your children know and belong to Jesus, he'll be with them as well. He will hold you by your right hand and afterwards take you into glory. Jacob didn't know what the future held. What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like in Egypt? I'm I'm outside the promised land. But God said he would provide in the near term as they endured famine and even in the far term, God would provide even during 400 years of living in a place not their own. So encouraged by God, Jacob and his family head down to Egypt. They push on uh, into the uncertainty and into the unknown. And in the next part of chapter 46, there's a list of all the people from the family of Jacob who went down to Egypt. You might like to read that later at home, but we'll pick up now reading from just after that list of names uh, in Chapter 46, verse 26. Uh, It says there, All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt. The members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. 
He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. The generosity of the Pharaoh in Joseph's day makes a stark contrast with the Pharaoh who was reigning over Israel in the time of the Exodus. This Pharaoh does all that he can to make Joseph's family comfortable. The best of the land is before you, he says. He gives them all the food that they need. But interestingly, it's not only the comparison between these two pharaohs that ties this part of Genesis with the beginning of Exodus. The words in Genesis 46:26 are repeated also at the beginning of Genesis uh, at the beginning of Exodus as well. So if you turn over a few pages to Exodus 1, there it says, "These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family." Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. It's kind of a compression of, uh, of chapter six, 20, uh, 46. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, uh, multiplied greatly increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Uh, you might have noticed that when God appeared to Jacob at the beginning of chapter 46, he not only promised that he would bring Jacob back to the land, I'll bring you back, but he also promised that he would make Jacob and his family into a great nation and he promised that the great multiplication of God's people would happen not in the promised land, but in Egypt. So 46.3, I am God, the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. By Genesis 46, God has already grown his people from one man, Abraham, into 70 people. But God promises to grow them even more than that. And the writer of Exodus is, if you like, picking up on that and saying, look, God has really done it. He really did what he said. He really made Israel great during their time in Egypt. There were so many, the Egyptians started to panic. 
And Genesis shows us that the way that God did it is through the generosity of Pharaoh and through the wise leadership of Joseph. It's remarkable, I think, that it's in a foreign land that God turns Israel into a great nation. It's under unbelieving rulers who are unexpectedly generous to God's people. Take the best of the land, says Pharaoh. It's through people like Joseph who are raised up unexpectedly by God to positions of influence and power. And in fact, during their time in Egypt, God makes Israel great not just by them having lots of babies, kind of multiplying that way. One of the most astonishing things that happens when Israel flees Egypt during the Exodus is that there are Egyptians and other people who see them going and go with them. There are people in Egypt whose hearts were not hard, like Pharaoh's heart. People who saw what God was doing through Israel, and when they saw them fleeing, they said, I'm going with them. Their God is doing something good. I'm going with that people. I'm going to trust their God. God promised to make Israel into a great nation, and he did. And surprisingly, he did it not in the promised land, but in the land of Egypt. And as we've already seen, the Bible describes us as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. We're pilgrims on the way to somewhere else. And I think that although we live with hope for the future... I think that often we fail to live with hope for the present. So we, we might believe that God is going to bring us back. Yes, I'll be with you, I'll bring you back. But we don't believe the next bit, and it will be there that I make you a great nation. We fail to see, I think, often that God is not just doing something in the future, God is doing something great now. God is building his people into a great community. And people around us keep looking over the fence and saying, I want to be part of them because God is really at work there. God is really doing something in Jesus. It's what Pete Woodcock said. People come in and they see, wow, God is actually doing something among these people. I want to be part of this. Or what Tex said before, the lady who's who's saying, I think I need to know God. When I speak to people in our church and in other churches, the feeling I get is that most of us don't really believe that God is building his kingdom, at least not here. We sort of believe it on paper. That is, we will say, yep, I believe that God is building his kingdom, but none of us really expect anyone that we know to come to Christ. None of us really expect anyone in our community to be converted. Spurgeon said uh, once to a preacher, preacher said, a young preacher said, I preached and no one was converted. And Spurgeon said, well, did you believe that anyone would be converted? No? Well, there's your problem. We think, I suspect, that because we're living in Egypt, that is, we're living in a land that is not our own, that isn't visibly governed in honour of Jesus, we think that all we have to do is bunker down and wait for the exodus. 
But God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation there. And you know, I find myself increasingly confident. I'm generally not an optimistic person. (laughs) I'm generally a very pessimistic person. But I find myself increasingly buoyed by a great confidence in God. I said to my friend of mine, I was talking to a friend of mine who's labouring away in a rural uh, ministry in Victoria. I said, God is going to build the church. And I believe it. I'm increasingly optimistic about what God is doing in the world. I'm increasingly confident that God is saving people. And I'm increasingly expectant that we will see more and more people coming to Christ. Not because we're doing anything amazing here at this church, far from it. In weakness, God's power is made perfect. But rather, it's because God is at work and God is building his church. I was talking to Ed Vanderveld a few weeks ago. He works as a chaplain and he said to me, he's seeing the fruit of other people's ministry. That is, he's seen people come to faith in the last days of their lives and that work is the long culmination of lots of Christians in those people's lives speaking the gospel. And when I hear stories like that, I become even more confident. And I hope you do too, that God is not just building the church there in the promised land, but here in exile Uh, and as strangers. God's kingdom is growing, and it's growing here in Launceston, in Tasmania, in Australia. It's growing from a tiny seed to the largest plant in the garden. God is in the business of growing small things into big things, and he's doing it among people who are strangers in a place not their own. So Jacob and the family have travelled down to Egypt. Uh, They've been looked after by Pharaoh, and in the last section we get a glimpse of just how Jacob, uh, sorry, just how Joseph ruled over Egypt. We'll read the last bit from uh, chapter 47, verse 13. Now, the Israel, uh, sorry, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe both in Egypt and Canaan. Uh, sorry, both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph 
bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favour in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still enforced today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. It's hard, I think, not to see what Joseph is doing here as incredibly ruthless. But there are a few points, I think, that we can make to help us kind of come to terms with what's going on. The first is, it's important to realise that the people themselves, it's the people themselves who come to Joseph and offer to sell their land and to sell themselves in order to buy grain. That is, it's not a policy which Joseph himself imposes, but it's a policy which the people themselves suggest. We're out of food, take us. Take our land. Second, even after that, even after they've sold everything, Joseph doesn't grind the people into a kind of hideous servitude and poverty. Actually, quite the opposite. Yes, they lose their land ownership, and yes they end up being required to give 20% of what they make to Pharaoh, but they also get to keep the other 80%. Joseph could have taken it all, right? He could have said, well, bad luck. You've lost it all, you can't survive. Tough. He doesn't do that. He leaves the majority in their own hands, 80%, Uh, and lets them continue to farm the land uh, that they've sold to Pharaoh. Their slavery, in other words, under Joseph, is of a radically different nature to the kind of slavery that the Israelites were later subjected to in Egypt before the Exodus. Third, the system that Joseph sets up is remarkably similar to the system that God sets up in Israel after the Exodus. There again, the land doesn't belong to the people. It belongs to God. And everyone except the priests has to contribute in some way. What they earn, uh, they have to contribute that to God, though it's only 10% rather than 20%. But perhaps most importantly, I think, the people themselves don't see this as ruthless. They don't see Joseph's actions as ruthless. They say to Joseph in verse 25, you've saved our lives. They said, may we find favour in the eyes of our Lord, we will be in bondage to Pharaoh. These people, in other words, are only too happy to relinquish what they have to Joseph because he saved them from death. And presumably, they're relatively happy as well because they see that Joseph is a wise and compassionate, generous and reasonable kind of ruler. 
So not only does salvation come to the people of Egypt in the future for those who flee uh, with the people of Israel during the Exodus, salvation already comes to Egypt in the person of Joseph. He saves them from famine and death. And yet the manner in which it comes, I think, challenges our notions of what it means to be saved by God. This passage, I think, confronts us with the hard edge of the gospel that many of us would sooner kind of push away. We find the idea of selling uh, what we have and selling ourselves an utter abomination. (laughs) We read this passage and we think, this is outrageous. And yet... Remarkably, the good news of the gospel is no less demanding than the model of generous leadership that Joseph displays in this chapter. The gospel is not the same as what happened in this chapter in that we don't buy our salvation. We don't trade uh, what we have in order to buy the free gifts that God has offered us in Jesus. So Isaiah says, "'Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters.'" And you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Nevertheless, while it might be free, Jesus says it costs us everything to receive it. He says in Luke's Gospel, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. We we cannot receive the Gospel without giving up everything that we own and everything that we possess to Jesus. We become, in Paul's language, slaves of Christ. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Now honour God with your bodies. Isn't that what the New Testament says? But that's not scary Because we know that Jesus is a loving and a compassionate master. He doesn't grind us into the dust. This is not the slavery of Egypt. This is the slavery of Joseph. He loves us and cares for us. In 400 years' time, God would save the descendants of Jacob from slavery in the land of Egypt. But when he brought them out, he didn't bring them out from slavery to complete freedom as we would see it. He brought them out from oppressive slavery to God's loving and generous rule. That is, he didn't bring them out to be autonomous. That's what we secretly want, or not so secretly want. He brought them out to love and obey him. The good news of the gospel is not that we're completely free from external restraint, free to do whatever we want. The good news of the gospel is that we've been freed from slavery to sin in order to love our generous Saviour God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote uh, of the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He said this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, Communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which a merchant will sell all his goods 
It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Like the Egyptians, we're starving and hopeless. And we come to Jesus and say, you've saved our lives. Take everything that we have. Even in a place not our own, God is with us and he'll bring us to himself. And even in a place not our own, God is building his church. He's releasing people from slavery to sin and he's bringing them under the loving and gracious rule and rescue of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, take our lives that they may be all you purpose, Lord, for thee. Lord, we thank you for your great grace in Jesus Christ. You have saved our lives. And as we sit here now, we offer again to you our very selves and all that we have in loving service to you, our great God and King. Lord, we confess that there are so many parts of our hearts that cling on to what we have and to who we are, that we long to be autonomous, long to rule our own lives. Take everything that we are, Lord, and make us live for you. And Lord, help us to trust as we live for you in this strange place, a place not our own, help us to trust that you are with us and that you are building your church. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.